Welcome to episode three of How We Win. We are chronicling the riveting run-up to the 2020 election, and every week we'll share these stories from the field. We're going to give you the tools you need to jump in and make a difference right now. It's time to get off the bench. Today, we're going to hear Steve's interview with Omar Rivero, the founder of the biggest grassroots political media website in the country, Occupy Democrats. You probably like that Facebook page. You're not alone. 7.8 million people do. Omar's going to talk about how he started with one like and one share and built from there. Then Mariah, former digital director for Kamala Harris's Senate campaign, Mm -hmm. will share her top tips for amplifying your voice online. And finally, Swing Left's Eastern Field director, Matt Caffrey, is the man with the plan. He'll tell you how you can help turn Virginia blue and why that's the election we should all be focused on right now. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Mariah Craven. And And this this is How We Win. For those that didn't recognize the voice at the top of our show, that was Speaker of the British House of Commons, John Burkow, who is stepping down before the new parliamentary election and taking all of those awesome sound bites with him. Oh, dear. <laughs> so we have so much to talk about, Mariah. A lot going on. Yeah. There's breaking news. There's new news. There's news in the future. There's future news that we don't know about because the North Carolina election, as we are recording this, mm-hmm. is still happening. So right. for you listeners, you may know the result of North Carolina 9. The, yeah, the 9th Congressional District uh, special election. We encouraged you last week to look into ways to help out Dan McCready, and we were up against – Trump himself, who went to North Carolina on Monday, held a rally with Pence, and had some, as always, uh, controversial things to say. There was a quote, right? Mm-hmm. What was it? Uh, I think it was, tomorrow is your opportunity to send a message to the America-hating left. Oh, okay. He's talking about us. Do you hate America, Steve? I don't think so. I think I really love America, which is why I'm working so hard to— Make it a fair and equitable place for people to live in. Absolutely. That's why I got up this morning and opened that hub dialer to uh, Dan McCready's virtual phone bank. Right. Um, So for those of of you who were able to help out uh, in the run-up to to Tuesday's election in North Carolina, well done. Like No matter what you're hearing this morning about the outcome, the morning that you're listening to this, well done. Because this was a place that— Trump won by 12 points, I believe, uh, in 2016. And uh, going in, it's a toss-up. It's anyone's game. And so um, we move the needle regardless of the outcome. Now, uh, let's talk about Sharpie Gate. Um, That was the sound of a Sharpie opening up as I said that. This is me taking notes with a Sharpie about (laughs) today's show. It's uh, Sharpiegate is is was funny and silly, and it's gotten really dark. Yeah, I I feel like there was so much time put into this. I'm like, is there other things we can we can be paying attention to? But uh, there's a really serious point to be made. Yeah. Um, obviously, uh, he's a buffoon, and um, it just the most idiotic thing I've ever seen for someone to draw a sharpie on a map like that and think that it'd be passable. But the fact that he is uh, openly willing to lie about weather right. just reinforces what he is capable of lying about and how important it is that we all really step up and show up in these elections to make sure that we have a resounding victory because he's going to do everything he can to denigrate the results, to suppress the vote, and to cheat and lie and do all the things he does to stay in power. Yeah, and I think it's it's uh, one of the many things that's come out of this is that he's surrounded by people who aren't going to check him. Like there, What I imagine the White House is like right now is Trump just walks around – Totally naked. And a staffer walks by and is like, great time, Mr. President. Yeah. Like, nobody's there to say, this is not a good idea. Let's let's not do it. Nobody can disagree with him. Uh, in fact, uh, Wilbur Ross threatened to fire the National Weather Service people who contradicted the president. And now you have someone else who's disagreed with the president who has just been fired. Hmm. And that's John Bolton, his national security advisor, which I'm really, really happy to see him gone. Yeah, I can't be sad about that one. I can't be sad, but 
in any other alternate universe, I would be nothing but happy to have John Bolton out of this administration. But in this one, it worries me that John Bolton wasn't like the man for Donald Trump. Like who is going to replace him? Who, what other – what new acting uh, head of something are we going to have that's just going to be another yes man to – to Donald Trump. Right. A yes man with or woman with very little experience. And I think we we did. Most it, it, likely a man, yeah. maybe a woman, but. <laughs> Most likely a man. But it did come out, you know, over the weekend with the whole let's invite the Taliban to Camp David, you know, the week of September 11th type of thing, that this was something that John Bolton pushed back against. And, you know, a, a couple of days later, he's fired and it's an, it's announced on Twitter per usual. Yeah. Yeah. So on uh, on the other side of the aisle, we have a debate on Thursday night. Oh, that's right. Are are you going to go to a debate watch party or host a debate watch party? I am. I'm going to a debate watch party. And um, the cool thing about debate watch parties, and we, we actually have like a, a toolkit for debate watch parties at Swing Left. Oh, fun. Yeah, because um, they're a great way to bring like-minded people, maybe some people who haven't volunteered before. You get together and watch the debate and um, and create like a little group and say, okay, let's get into some action. Maybe we can do some letter writing or actual, you know, phone calls and yeah. get involved in Virginia, which we're going to talk about later. Listen, a watch party is a great entry into uh, some of these activities for people you know who – would be valuable to super low lift. Yeah, like, yeah. do you want to come watch the debates with me? We're okay. having a party at my house. Yeah, yeah, easy. Now, what else can you do? Right, right, exactly. So, I'm excited, and I'm excited to hear more from our awesome candidates. And uh, and one more thing I want to touch on that we talked about last week too. Um, mm-hmm. In the wake of these shootings, uh, how Walmart had decided to not sell ammunition right. uh, in their stores. Now, um, Moms Demand Action and Shannon Watts has had uh, yeah. a lot of great results with grocery stores and companies all over the right. all over the place saying they were not going to allow open carry in their stores, which. Again, it's an incremental thing, but it's uh, indicative of this movement that we're really seeing. Right. Um, They have a long list of of victories from the last few days of of companies that have asked customers not to to carry weapons openly in the states where that's legal. This is a huge deal. I used to live in Texas. I can't tell you how jarring it is to be in a, a public space with somebody who's just casually armed they're yeah. not law enforcement. And the, and the problem becomes you don't know what they're going to do next. And um, it's part of the trend. Um, we talked about how popular gun legislation really is yeah. across party lines, too. Even with firearm owners, they yeah. they agree that we, that we have to do more uh, with regards to background checks and making sure that people are trained in firearm safety before they're allowed to buy a gun. That's huge. That's a huge change. And, Mitch and, McConnell, are you listening? No, he's not. <laughs> do you think he's listening? To this? Are you I, listening to the people? I don't think he's listening. So we've got a lot to do this week, and we're going to talk a little bit about Virginia coming up, but there are other things that are a little more short-term that we need to get involved in There's some well. stuff this weekend. Exactly. Um, Planned Parenthood has a Title X Protection Day of Action coming up on September 14th. And this is about protecting access to abortion and contraception against constant attacks uh, by the Trump administration. So you can go to PlannedParenthoodAction.org to find an event near you or find out how you can reach out to your congress member and talk to them about making sure um, that they're standing up to the Trump administration about this and protecting our health care. Excellent. Please do that. And um, Indivisible has an action coming up about immigration. Mm-hmm. All week, I think um, they're doing actions across the country called Defund Hate. So they're asking people to stand up for immigrant families and demand that Congress cut funding for ICE and Border Patrol in the in the budget fight that's happening this month. Check that out, too. Get involved. This is how we amplify our voices and make them heard. Okay, let's get to the interview. Attention, foodies. Discovery Plus has what you're hungry for. With new original series and a supersized collection of favorites, Discovery Plus has the largest collection of food shows anywhere. With new exclusives like Bobby and Jada in Italy and Luda Can't Cook, the streaming service for everyone hungry for more. 
More cooking, more competition, more originals. All for only $4.99. Discovery Plus is the streaming home of food, plus so much more. Start your free trial. Most of us don't appreciate the reach and influence that we have. We have a bigger impact than we ever get to see. Today, I'm sitting down with someone who knows a lot about how to amplify his voice and help build a movement. Omar Rivero is the founder of Occupy Democrats, a progressive news site that he built with his twin brother to be a counterweight to Fox News' right-wing propaganda machine. Starting with one like and one share, they now have over 7.8 million subscribers on Facebook and are one of the most influential news sites on the web. Omar, thank you so much for being here and sharing your story. Yeah, you're welcome, and thanks for having me. So, you're a first-generation Mexican-American, born in Mexico. You moved to the U.S., to Miami, when you were seven? Yeah, about to turn eight, that's right. About to turn eight, okay. Yeah. Was your family political when you were growing up? Uh, actually, my father um, had actually ended up being put in jail for a couple months. Him and a couple of friends of his um, started a... Well, they had plans to start a school to teach uh, industrial agricultural methods to farmers in Mexico, you know, basically indigenous farmers. So, of course, throw him in jail for that, right? Teach them new technologies, (laughs) etc. Yeah, so uh, the powers that be didn't like that, threw him and his associates in prison. Uh, Not for too long, just like a couple weeks or a month. But that was enough to scare my dad away from politics. And you have... uh Seven brothers and sisters? Yeah, I'm the, my twin and I are the youngest of seven kids, yes. So your family struggled a lot when you were young with poverty, seven siblings. Um, yeah. It's a lot of mouths to feed. Yeah. Am I right, when you came to America, to Miami, you didn't speak English? Yeah, uh, I didn't speak a lick of English and neither did any of my brothers and sisters. And, uh, my father spoke some English because my mom is actually American. Um, she's... Right. Uh, uh, she was born in New York. In New York. She's, yeah, she's Jewish. Um, she went to Mexico to study, met my father, um, stayed in Mexico, fell in love. They had seven kids. And I guess when things got really bad in Mexico, I mean, the peso devalued a couple times and the economy crashed. And uh, things uh, just got really tough. And I guess my mom's family came to visit. My mom just made the executive decision that it was time to uh, basically pull the plug on Mexico and come to America in chase of uh, better opportunity and e- economic opportunities for not just for herself, but for her family and for her kids. Right. Um, and you landed in Miami. Yeah, because we, ha- we happen to have relatives there. Yeah. So in a way, I mean, we were very lucky that we had relatives because uh, from what I understand, they paid for our flights and they paid for like our first few months. So we were very, very fortunate. And the fact that we're American. So... I mean, when I was in Mexico and I told my friends and uh, acquaintances, hey, I'm going to America, they all instilled in me just how lucky I was. You know, when I arrived, I thought, you know, it's going to be like golden streets and I mean, (laughs) like chocolate for everybody and like no homework. I mean, I had this uh, magical idea of America. And in fact, uh, it was even more of a struggle because in Mexico, when you're poor, um, food is relatively cheap. So you don't struggle to eat when you're poor in Mexico. And even even being poor, you have basic necessities. But here in America, uh, being poor, it's, it's almost harder. You know, we're, it's a very dog-eat-dog, um, ultra-capitalistic society. So <laughs> it was actually really tough when we first got here. And uh, I was actually really depressed as a kid, mm. having moved here. Not only, was, not only were we living in a really... Uh, terrible apartment, you know, infested with cockroaches and really struggling. But I also missed uh, my family back in Mexico, hmm. etc. You worked really hard. You ended up with a degree from Cornell yes. and are now running a hugely influential news site out of your house in L.A. Yes. Um, how does all that experience shape your view of America and the political world that we're in right now? Man. It's a very complicated question, but basically it's the driving force of my work and basically the genesis of Occupy Democrats because, yes, I I did manage to get into a very good school and a very good graduate school, and I 
did manage to start. I forgot to mention graduate school in Europe, right? Yeah. Where, where'd you go? It's called the European School of Management. Right. Okay. Yeah. It's okay. an it's an international program. I was in Italy and London. Yeah, a year in each. Um, so yes, I've been privileged, and but the thing is, like, I I got it unimaginably lucky on my way up, and it wasn't a it wasn't a straight ride upwards. I mean, I got I things went well, things did not go well. I wasn't exactly a model student in high school. In fact, uh, my first couple years in high school, I was a troublemaker, and I fell in with the wrong crowd, and I had really no plans of going to college. It wasn't until I took my uh, public, my PSAT scores, my practice SATs, that not just me, but counselors and people realized, hey, wow, I mean, you have potential. I, didn't, I myself didn't realize that I was intelligent because I grew up in a society where intelligence and in a neighborhood where intelligence is really not valued and people don't place a lot of trust in students. You know, it's, it's like my high schools had... My school had 50 students in it. There wasn't enough books, not enough textbooks. I mean, it's, it's not your typical American story. Uh, story. Miami has, is a Republican-led, it's a Republican state. So, and people are very, very conservative there. So when you grow up in the in forgotten... Florida? Yeah. Really? <laughs> yeah. Even in, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, the public education system is not what it should be. Uh, anyways, to make a long story short... I realized that I had potential. I turned my life around. I started getting good grades. But even then, I mean, there was a lot of ups and downs, and I had to get very fortunate. A lot of, a lot of people really believed in me along the way. And I just want to make sure that somebody doesn't have to get as lucky as I did, hmm. right? In my high school, I'm one of the only kids who did get into an Ivy League school. But there was I graduated in the bottom, in the in the basically in the 50 percentile of my high school the only reason i got into an ivy league school is because i got recruited to play soccer mm. so i feel really terrible for you know the top 10 students in my high school which was a good school actually and they got really good grades and they didn't get into an ivy league school because schools ivy league schools don't look at schools like my high school you know they pick from the private schools where they have a 40%, 50% success rate in placing kids into Ivy League schools. And kids from where I'm from, the large, forgotten schools uh, in an underfunded district, they don't generally get looked at for, by Ivy League schools when they're screening for applicants. Right. So I want to make sure that somebody from where I'm from doesn't have to get as lucky as I did. Um, that Make sure that the system works for them and that top talent uh, is identified and is nurtured and that people have... Um, the opportunity to go to a good school. I mean, a lot of folks from where I'm from, they get into good schools, but they can't afford to pay for them, right? So a lot of the kids where I'm from, they get into University of Florida, for example. And I know a lot of kids. And they ended up having to go to Miami-Dade Community College because uh, state schools are $40,000 a year. Right. So there's a lot of kids who are undereducated by our system and who are really... um, they get the short end of the stick, and I want to make sure that that doesn't happen anymore. When did you first start getting involved in politics then? What motivated you to jump in and to get into action there? Yeah, I, you know, I have to say, and a lot of people have the same answer from my generation. Uh, it was my freshman year in high school, and, I, and my teacher put on the television, and it was 9-11. And I mm. saw these buildings coming down, and I saw how scared everybody was, and I thought, like, wow— Maybe I really should start looking at, you know, I, I saw President Bush come on television the next day and said, we're going to get those evildoers. And I realized that the whole world was about to change. And I said, man, I better really start paying attention to politics. And thankfully, at the time, it was just about the time that the Internet started to get really popular. So I was able to go online and do a lot of my own research. And um, that's pretty much how I started. Um, then once I got into Cornell uh, to play soccer, mm-hmm. um, I chose my major. I studied labor, industrial labor and relations, which is um, basically the relationship between management and the workers and the history, etc. Mm. And it's basically like a political degree. I mean, labor is, especially in the 30s and 40s, I mean, our parents were, were you know, in the picketing line getting beat over the head because they wanted labor rights. Uh, so that's really what's that's really uh, studying labor and how it and how it's intertwined and related with our history and our laws is what got me into politics. So when did you first have the idea for Occupy Democrats? So it's kind how, of interesting. how did that whole thing germinate? <laughs> it's kind of an interesting story. So 
when I was in college at Cornell, I was active on Facebook. And at the time, I thought, like, wow, this is the future of politics. I mean, I basically was arguing with faith, like, not arguing, I mean, a lot of times agreeing with people, but I was just discussing politics on Facebook with people all day long. People do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But back then, there weren't fan pages. So there wasn't Occupy Democrats. There was only Omar Rivero. Right. So under my personal Facebook, I started just adding people that I had a lot of friends in common with or identifying people that knew a lot about politics and building up a political Facebook network because I knew in the future I may want to do something with it. But the thing is that I come from a family of low means. So, you know, I don't know anybody that, got, that could get me a nice job or anything like that. I figured like, okay, I'm going to... You know, I, I was I studied in basically investment banking and I thought, OK, I'll work for an investment bank and I'll make some money. And then when I'm, you know, I'll work for the man for 20, 30 years. And well, <laughs> after I've, you know, repaid my mom uh, the loan for, for my master's program and taking care of my family, I'll get into politics and I'll start doing what I really love. So I did that. I worked for a bank for like six months. Uh, I hated it. I was miserable. And I asked my mom, can I please uh, just move back into your apartment? For just give me like four or five months, I want to brainstorm and I want to do my own thing in politics because whether it takes me a year or like ten years, I know that it, I know that eventually I will make it. And I'd rather get into politics now while I'm young than wait until I'm older and have been working for the man for twenty, thirty years to do what I love. Right. So I came home, I brainstormed a lot, and I decided, okay, I want to start a Facebook page called Occupy Democrats. And this uh, was around 2012? The end of 2012, yeah. Okay. This is like September, so right before the elections. So I didn't even know how to start a page. I Googled it. I, you know, I clicked start a page and came up with the name. The name uh, is kind of an interesting story as well. So I was in Europe for two years, and then I was in Colombia working for this bank for about maybe eight months. So I okay. spent maybe two and a half years away from my family. So when I flew back from Colombia to the United States... I purposely got a flight to New York uh, so that I could see the Occupy movement in Sukkari Park because I was so excited about it. I had been watching it from Europe, and I thought, wow, the left finally has a movement. I mean, the Tea Party was just driving me nuts. There was Tea Party congressmen, mm. Tea Party senators. They're writing laws, and these people, they're anti-government. They're wrong about everything. They're scared of their own shadow, yeah. and they're funded by the Koch brothers. And I thought, wow, you know, our economy, I mean, our... our Woefully unqualified to hold virtually any job. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> right. really, really, just yeah. really extreme people. Yeah. Really, I mean, there's basically the John Birch Society on steroids in power, you know. So I was terrified by the Tea Party. And when I heard about Occupy Movement happening in Zuccotti, I said, okay, wow, the left finally has our own movement. So I went down there and, you know, I wouldn't say I was disappointed, but I was a little surprised to see how varied the schools of thought within Occupy were, right? So you have your hardcore progressive liberals, you know, the socialist Democrats, and then you have Tea Partiers among the crowd, and people that were anti-government, people that didn't have a home, but were against Obamacare. Obamacare hadn't passed at the time. It was still being debated. And I thought to myself, well, sure, Obamacare is not amazing, but it's a bigger step up from what we have now. Like, why are we against government? We should be pro-government, etc. Then I went around talking to people, and I realized, written into the bylaws of Occupy Wall Street, like on day one, they said, we will never get involved in politics, ever. You know, we're going to affect change from outside the political system. Hmm. Looking back, they succeeded in that because before that, nobody even knew what the word socioeconomic inequality even meant. Yeah. I mean, I was screaming about it on Facebook as Omar Rivero. Right. But I mean, so after they, 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 they changed the lexicon, they put a focus on economic inequality. They put a focus on what caused the financial crisis. It was rampant greed and criminality on Wall Street spurred on by George Bush and Republicans in Washington, right? So... They succeeded in that respect, but there is no Occupy congressman. There is no Occupy senator. So while the, well, there's still a Tea Party caucus, they're called the Freedom Caucus, and they and and yeah. they and Trump still pretty much does whatever they want. Yeah. So they're still really powerful. So I thought to myself, there needs to be another offshoot of Occupy of the Occupy Wall Street movement that is for people who also support you know the general tenets of Occupy, but also generally support President Obama and the Democrats. And so I started the page on day one. I sent like 
three, you know, I had like 3,000 friends. So I literally sat there. I clicked in by 3,000 times. <laughs> like 500 of my friends accepted. I made my first post. I got like one like and like one share or something. <laughs> and I looked at my brother Javier. I remember my mom's apartment balcony and I said, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I said, this is going to be just as big as Fox News one day. With and one share. With one share, <laughs> yeah. Just because I, 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 knew that, I knew that there was space and I knew that Facebook was the future. So yeah. I, I bet really heavily on it and it turned out to be right. Well, you definitely, however you did it, had the secret sauce for that. Um, when you first realized that you had like really tapped into something. Yes. Maybe a little bit after just the one share, but yeah. when, when it uh, first started really blowing up, yeah. how did it feel to, to watch it explode like that? Man. Um, so basically, I was just, I was so overworked, like it became kind of an obsession, right? Because it's like if someone collects train sets and then all of a sudden their tr- people really love their train set collection. And they want to know all about it, and they're active in their train set collection. It becomes an obsession, right? Because it's a hobby of yours that you're passionate about that's growing. So I started working like 19-hour days, barely getting any sleep. And I pretty much kept that up. I've kept that up for like six years now. <laughs> and I, I, when I first you started... You look pretty yeah. re- like refreshed. You look oh, like you've you know, I appreciate got a little that. sun. It's been nice out, right? <laughs> it's Los Angeles. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but it, I, at first, I was just working so hard and so excited about it. it. It didn't really hit me. It wasn't until after the election. So it was like after a three-month period. Uh, the day after the election, when Obama got reelected in 2012, like I got a lot of really, really nice messages from people that said, wow, like, you know, I followed your page and, and it really got me excited about voting and, and thank you for educating us. And that's when I truly realized the power because, uh, I mean, for me at the time, even having just one person feel that I was educating them or helping them out um, or getting more civically active was, in my opinion, a huge win. Right. Yeah. So having multiple people say that, I said, wow. Then I then I really, really got even more motivated. And uh, I mean, that's what we talk about when we talk about our circle of influence. And yes. some people have a, a huge circle of influence. Presidential candidates have um, a huge circle of influence. But even regular people have a larger impact and ability to reach people than, than they know. Um, yes. And one thing I, uh, that I heard from your story, too, is when you first started this and you were living uh, in your mom's apartment, you were cleaning vacation rentals in in Miami and updating your page as you were, you know, cleaning houses and cleaning toilets and stuff? Yeah, uh, it's hard to believe. I mean, even me looking back, but um, yeah, uh, I in order to run Occupy Democrats, it was a full-time job. Uh, so I couldn't, I couldn't work for a corporation or I couldn't have a gig and I needed money. I mean, my mom just gave me a place to live, but she didn't put food on my in my on my table, right. and I also wanted to contribute what I could. Right. So I cleaned vacation rentals, which gave me the time that I needed to work while making. I mean, while I, so I can work on Occupy Democrats while doing some. Um, uh, sorry, while making some money. Right now, I, you know, I, like looking back, I mean, the folks who I used to do the cleaning with. I mean, I've met some of the best people in my life. And I, I just, I really value work. So I don't care if you're a CEO or if you're somebody that wakes up at five in the morning to be a janitor. Um, I think that there's dignity in both. Yeah. And I don't think that uh, our society should be so morally sick that we use capitalism to justify um, such inequities in our economic system. Then in 2016... November of 2016, there was another election. How did Trump getting elected change your work at Occupy Democrats, or did it? Uh, well, I don't. I don't know if we discussed this. Oh yeah, we have. But you know, I'm Mexican American, and I'm, right. I'm really. I mean, I wasn't even really aware of that of what even being American really meant until I was eight. You know, so I still really feel Mexican. Um, so the one that one day that Donald Trump came down the elevator and the, that golden escalator, yeah, and he said that I, I watched that live with my brother, and uh. he said that Mexicans are rapists and murderers, and I just remember looking at the television screen and thinking, I'm gonna wreck this guy. Like I cannot. <laughs> like I was just so offended. Yeah. I mean, I I was personally I was offended for myself. I was offended for 
people of color. I was offended for documented immigrants, for undocumented immigrants. I was shocked that someone who was running for president would even say something like that. Now, the next day, I go online and I see his poll numbers skyrocketing through the roof. And that's when I realized, uh, you know, Houston, we have a problem here um, because we have a fascist who tapped into uh, America's ugly undercurrent of racism that's always been around. And maybe people weren't so outwardly vocal about it, but now they've now I'm, I'm not saying most of Americans are generally beautiful people. But there are there is a certain you know certain segment of Trump supporters who are uh, viciously racist, mm-hmm. and I feel like not only did he tap into that energy, but he harnessed it and he emboldened it. So uh, it it made me work a lot harder. Uh, my brother and I are bilingual, so we were able to translate videos. We were so that gave us a leg up with the Donald Trump videos because we were translating responses by Hispanics and Mexican people, transputting them in English and taking them viral. So we basically became like the go-to anti-Trump page on Facebook. Right. As as he rose to power and 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 wow, I mean, even got elected, it only it only heightened uh, my sense of urgency and the importance uh, of my work. And it's done that for so many people too. You know who been motivated to jump in and do this work because of uh and thank you for by the way calling it what it is fascism there's really no other way to describe him um he is a a fascist and uh that playbook has been uh in operation since that trip down the escalator so um and not enough people call that out because just look at fascism 101 and you know what builds up a fascist um wannabe dictatorship and he's yeah. he's right in the playbook so um yeah, and and that's another thing that's been a big part of our rise with occupied democrats is that we be, we basically became the first i would say we're the first large i mean we definitely we were groundbreaking in a sense that we were a partisan news source a news source that said we're not going to tell you uh, you know this is what trump said we're going to tell you this guy's making fascist comments and mm-hmm. at the time people said that's crazy who's going to read news from a news source that's partisan. And I, and I said, I think Americans are ready to hear the truth about what these Republicans are doing. So, um, and it was happening already on the other side. Exactly. Like Fox and Yeah, Fox, Breitbart they crossed the Rubicon a long time ago. Yeah. Um, but see, the, the comparisons to Fox, and this happens a lot, uh, and I don't mind them because, I mean, on social media, we are the size of I can Fox edit news. it all out if you want. No, no that's kidding. fine. No, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> But the, but I just want to point out one caveat is that Fox News, they're incendiary with falsehoods, right? With lies, right? I mean, they'll call Ilham Omar a terrorist, right? A woman because she wears a scarf on her head, right? They're incendiary. We are. Some people describe us as incendiary. I wouldn't even say that. I think we just say the truth because we call a fascist a fascist, a homophobe a homophobe, right? And a racist a racist. And that makes some people uncomfortable, but we're going to keep keep speaking our truth. And I think the fact that we're the largest and most active political page on Facebook for six years running now, I think it's a testament to the fact that people are ready for the truth. People want to hear the truth. Yeah, people yeah. don't. People are, are are tired of the media, uh, you know, pretending that conservatives are a legitimately opposing have legitimately opposing viewpoints, which maybe they did. Uh, you know, in the 80s and early 90s, but since the 1990s, um, they're pushing the policy goals of the billionaire class, and they're using racism and bigotry to hoodwink uh, poor white people into voting for them. Right. And saying that when I first started Occupy Democrats was, wow, people were shocked that somebody would say that out loud. And I think now more people like you are getting into the fold, and now I'm not the only one, right? So, And I think... Um, Calling someone a racist, especially in a public forum like Facebook, might be kind of a scary thing for someone. I mean, obviously, if it didn't require a little bit of courage to step up and advocate for something uh, when you see some injustice, then everyone would do it. And they don't. There's plenty of people who stay silent when they see things, right? So um, perhaps uh, some of the posts that you put out that tell the truth, 
make it easier for people to share those messages. So exactly. it's not like they're putting out a statement of their own that they're a little bit scared to do, exactly. but they can just share your posts and get that out into their communities or whatever. You know? Precisely. And we get a lot of messages to that effect. I mean, so, I mean, when I read every single message that we get because we get a lot of hate mail, but mm-hmm. you'd be surprised by the amount of support that we get. What's your perception on the state of the Democratic Party right now? And uh, what do you think we can do to make sure that we're united yeah. in 2020? Compared to 2016, we're very, very united. I think people yeah. are very, very excited. I've never seen anything like it. I mean, I, I've been doing, even since before Occupy Democrats, I've been doing political advocacy on on social media. And I've never seen people so united I've never seen people so energized and so fired up. And also, I, I've heard not just from people on the ground, but also leaders in our industry, um, both um, both sides of the you know of the of the democratic political divide, right? I mean, you have the neoliberals and the centrists, and then you mm-hmm. have the democratic socialists, etc., and more revolutionary types. Uh, everybody realizes that we don't want to make the same mistake we made in 2016, and it's this time around. It's made the best candidate win. Nobody wants the DNC to tip the scales in any way whatsoever. And it looks and it appears they've changed the bylaws of the DNC. So it looks like this time around, everything is above board mm-hmm. and all the candidates are united. And I think, I think any Democrat has a chance of beating Trump at this point. I mean, uh, the media tries to play him off as, as uh, someone who has a, a strong, strong chance of getting reelected. But I think the facts speak for themselves. Um, He's the most unpopular president in American history. He's very ineffective. I mean, all he passed was a tax, this tax bill, <laughs> yeah. right? So he's incompetent, he's ineffective, he's embarrassing, and he's unpopular. That was effective for a very small segment of our electorate. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, the wealthiest that needed it least. In 2016, briefly, everybody took a side. You know, in Occupy Democrats, we spent the whole time trying to keep the party united uh, we didn't endorse anybody. We extolled the virtues of Bernie Sanders. We extolled the virtues of of, uh, of Hillary Clinton. And this time around, we plan on doing the same thing. Uh, we want to keep it positive. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not going to do anything divisive. We're not going to work with any candidates uh, to attack any other candidates. And I think that uh, it's really, really, really important that Occupy Democrats uh, provides that function. You know, a lot of uh, everybody's anti-Trump, anti-Trump, but a lot of the voters are not getting what we are for. Right. So our, my goal is to highlight the positive uh, attributes of, and the policy uh, ideas and platforms and proposals of each candidate. Well, thank you for teeing up my next question for me <laughs> um, because I was interested um, – I mean, you have access to all kinds of data. You get to see like real-time results on what messages are, are hitting home, right? Yes. So what are the issues that people are really responding to? Where are you getting the most engagement? Well, I mean, ever since the election, uh, things have changed. So I spent from 2012 to 2016, most of my work was explaining uh, Obama's policies. And this, you know, this is why we need to raise the minimum wage. And here's the economic impact of that. Uh, this is why the, the, the mandate that you buy health insurance, uh, here's the reason for it and why it makes Obamacare work. And these are complicated subjects mm-hmm. that, um, that I really took a lot of pride in, in putting them in easily digestible format. Yeah. Ever since Trump got elected, you know, it may, it's not such, it doesn't really bode very well, but Serious things like that, they don't they don't get a lot of play on social media because I think people feel we're not in power. So we need to tear down uh, the Republicans that are in power. And then once we're in power, we can get back to, you know, discussing serious policy issues, etc. So right now, it's it's all most things are very Trump related. Right. But I have to say. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, I've never seen anything as viral as her. Yeah. I mean, she is she's even more viral than Trump is. So anything related to her uh, does really well. And and it's really exciting because not only are her ideas wholly supported by our organization, but also the right gives her a lot of airtime because she increases their their ratings. And she goes and and they play her videos on Fox News. She hits every talking point. I think a lot of Republicans are agreeing with a lot of things that she's saying. So I think the more the right focuses on her and the more she continues to stay on message and hit every talking point, uh, we could be talking about a future presidential candidate here. 
that's, our future president. That's really interesting. That, well, that's what Michael Moore was saying. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. He was saying we should lower the age and let her run you know, right away. But uh, that is interesting because that's basically what media did for Trump in the exactly. last election. You know, exactly. He was so good for ratings. And um, they just covered the hell out of him just constantly. Yeah. And his message was just bam, bam, bam. So um, that's interesting. Yeah, to hear I'm that. seeing a lot of the exact same parallels. I was just discussing it with my team yesterday. Hmm. Interesting. So, uh, well, AOC's cutting through. That's really, really good. We've had uh, a, a lot of registration work that we've done over the last couple of years, led by young people, led by um, the March for Our Lives kids and groups like that. 25% of young people have been registering as Democrats, 25% have been registering as Republicans, and about 50% as no party preference. So what messages do you think we need to amplify to get more young people to identify as a Democrat and to get involved as a you know, member of the Democratic Party? To be honest, I think the presidential candidates have a very liberal platform. And I think a lot of young people would, would agree with all of it. I mean, young mm-hmm. people nowadays, I feel like, yes, 25, it's 25 and 25. But out of those 50, I feel 90 percent of those 50 would be would identify as Democrats yeah. if the Democrats were proven to be more progressive. And I think there is a changing of the guards uh, that is taking place right now. Pretty much, you can't, run for, you can't run for president if you don't support a $15 minimum wage, if you don't support single payer, if you don't support at least debt-free public college. So all these things are attractive to young people. But I think young people are very in tune with the internet and it's very hard to fool them. And we... Obama, I love Obama. Uh, I think he was a fantastic president, one of the best presidents we ever had, one of the best people we ever had as presidents, and, and an amazing father, etc. Don't make me cry. Yes. <laughs> but, um, he, you know, he was hampered by Congress. You know, uh, they abused the has to rule in the House. They abused the Senate filibuster. And he wasn't able to implement uh, as, as much uh, progressive changes he wanted to. Right. And I think he should have, you know, maybe he was constrained at the time. But I do think that whoever is next should not try to court, uh, court Republican votes or even court Republicans in any way whatsoever. Um, we need to be as progressive as possible, and the people will back us up. Because the American people, even the ones who say that they're conservatives, when you tell them, hey, do you think your wages are high enough? Do you think your health care is good enough? They all support democratic policies. They just don't know it yet. Yeah, and I agree with you. I think you know the vast majority of these recently registered young independents yeah. are supportive of and and loudly supportive of democratic policies but yeah. um, let's give them something let's give them some results let's raise their minimum wage to $13 let's give them debt free public college and they'll be democrats for life mark mm-hmm. my words okay yeah. what's your goal for the next 2 years leading up to 2020 what what role do you want to play personally well personally uh, i want to educate the voters about the Democratic candidates. I also would like to have the Democrats choose the most progressive candidate possible. Mm -hmm. That could be Trump. So that would be my goal over the next two years. But after that, so I, I enjoyed my time more. I used to love going to work and defending President Obama from ridiculous attacks from Republicans, explaining his policies. So I would love to go back to having Democrats uh, in power and being an integral. Me too. Yeah. (laughs) And being an integral part of implementing, if it's not the Green New Deal, I want some kind of new deal. I want big, bold action. I want a jobs program. I want higher wages. I want single payer. There's plenty of money. We're the world's richest country in the world. We spend so much money on our military uh, we spend so much, we blow so much money on tax cuts for the rich when the rich are doing better than ever. These are taxes that they don't want, that they don't need. So people say, how are you, how are you going to pay for these things? We're, there's plenty of money to pay for whatever we want. Yeah. It's a matter of priorities. And I want to make sure that there's people in Washington, D.C. that have the people's priorities and not the billionaires' priorities. Nothing wrong with being a billionaire, but th- there's no reason why they should be able to buy off our democracy, and implement policies that are so hurtful to the average American that end up 
really destroying the social contract that Americans have with our capitalist system. We like capitalism, but we don't like vulture capitalism. We don't like predatory capitalism. And it's about time that Congress started to reflect that. Very well said. All right. Um, what advice would you have for someone who is upset, frustrated, activated, and wants to do something but doesn't know how to get involved, doesn't know how to use their voice? I mean, that's a really good question. Um, I would recommend using social media to your advantage, to mm -hmm. be honest, because it's really hard. For example, without social media, how could a kid that's cleaning apartments start something that re reaches more people than Fox News and a lot of outlets combined, right? So what social media did is what it broke barriers to entry. So anybody could start an Instagram page. There's no, there's no barrier to entry. Anybody could start a Facebook page and start inviting their friends and putting up really good content and working at it little by little. So I would recommend, especially to the young folks out there, to do what the Parkland students did. You know, they, they faced tragedy. They wanted to get involved. And they put themselves out there. You know, I mean, my hat's off to them. Those kids are young. Yeah. And, they're, and they're going out there and they're giving television interviews and they're being articulate and they're being unapologetic about uh, taking on the NRA and, stop, and stopping them from profiting off so much bloodshed in America. Right. So take their example, take my example, get involved, get active, uh, speak out, use social media to your advantage because being young and being techie and being innovative on the Internet is something that, this large, that the establishment uh, cannot duplicate. So... Try as hard as they wanted to stop Occupy Democrats from growing. They couldn't stop us. So take advantage of that opportunity that we have. It's unprecedented and uh, cost-effective. Omar Rivero, thank you very much for talking and sharing your story. Make sure you are subscribed to Occupy Democrats on Facebook. Of course, you probably already are. <laughs> but um, And on all of your favorite social media platforms. Help amplify these messages by sharing them with your friends. Retweet. Make your voice heard. So, Mariah, we just heard from Omar and how he built the behemoth that yeah. is Occupy Democrats. It's amazing. Uh, you know a lot about digital organizing because you were Kamala Harris's— Yeah, I, I did um, digital for a lot of candidates, including Kamala Harris when she was running for Senate and, and Wendy Davis when she was running for governor of Texas. Um, I loved that that job because it allowed me to help build a community— Online, Like we had these great communities in person where we were um, knocking doors together and, and phone banking together, but we were also sharing a lot of information and strategy online. So I encourage everybody who's on social media to really try to harness that and help build an online community, whether it's around your favorite candidate or your swing left chapter. There's tons you can do, um, including sharing useful information, amplifying candidates' messages, mm -hmm. engaging with people. I always remind people, sometimes it feels like you just want to sort of like tweet a cool article or uh, a pithy line into the abyss, but you also have to be responding to other people and engaging folks in conversation. One of the best ways to do that, of course, is to uh, use a hashtag that other like-minded folks are using. So let's say you want to talk to people about this podcast, then you can go online and use hashtag HowWeWin2020 and talk with like-minded folks, give me and Steve feedback, and we'll share some we'll share some behind the scenes information too. So now we're building a community together. Very nice on this podcast. I love that. Yeah, and so we'll go deeper into that on a future episode. We're going to talk more about digital organizing. Can't wait. Uh, but uh, now uh, we need to talk about Virginia. Yes, because Virginia is super important. Um, we're joined now with our first call in, the great Matt Caffrey, who is our Eastern Field Director at Swing Left. The great Matt Caffrey. <laughs> How are you, Matt? I'm doing great. Great to be with you both. Tell us about Virginia, why it's important, and how people can get involved. Absolutely. Well, folks will remember back in 2017, um, Democrats had a great year in Virginia. We were hoping to flip a few seats in the state legislative races, you know, win the governorship. Well, not only did we win the governorship in the other statewide elected offices, we flipped 15 
seats in the House of Delegates uh, and had a banner year. We elected our first Latina members. We elected our first openly trans member. And it was really transformative. But in the end, we came one seat short Mm. of a majority in the House of Delegates. And there was a seat that was determined literally by drawing a name from a hat. So that was, you know, both exciting and encouraging and inspiring uh, but also sort of it, it was frustrating. Uh, we, we we hate to come up short, even though we had such a great year. This year, we have an opportunity to uh, not only take back the House of Delegates, but also take back the state Senate, which is up. And uh, we are b- just a couple of seats short in both houses. By winning both houses, Democrats would take uh, what's called a trifecta in Virginia, meaning we'd have the governor's office and both houses of the state legislature, which would allow us to do a lot of really great things. And so Swing Left has gone all in on Virginia this year. We are going to work on 20 competitive districts, 15 in the House and five in the Senate. And there are lots of opportunities for folks to get involved to make a difference. That's awesome. And I used the drawing the name out of a hat example. I got a lot of mileage out of that for why why it's important to knock every door that you can, make every phone call that you can, that every contact you make really, really matters. Um, so, yeah. now, so now here we are again. Speaking of that voter contact, how can people help? How can they plug in? The single best thing a person can do right now is go and knock doors in Virginia. If you live close enough to Virginia, if you can get to Virginia, go knock some doors. The face-to-face voter contact means so much uh, as we encourage Democratic-leaning voters to get out there and vote. You know, odd-year elections tend to be low voter turnout. So there are lots of likely Democratic voters that if they were to vote, we know with a lot of confidence how they'd vote. Uh, but it's just a struggle to get them out to the polls. So Virginia, uh, in, a, in a few months, could be a deep blue state passing things like gun violence prevention, protecting voting rights, uh, protecting access to abortion, and very, very critically, uh, ending the Republican gerrymandering of Virginia, which has uh, mm-hmm. prevented Democrats from winning the seats in both Congress and in the state legislature that we should have, given how blue a state this is. Right. And that's the the gerrymandering is a huge issue there and time is is running out i don't know that it's on a lot of people's radar that this election is just weeks away yeah this election is in uh, early november it's the first tuesday after the first monday in november uh, and there is still plenty of time to make a difference you can donate to the flippable virginia fund you can write letters to likely democratic voters to encourage them to get out and vote. That's especially important if you don't live close enough to Canvas. But as I said, if you if you can Canvas, if you can make it to Virginia, uh, if you live in Virginia, please go knock some doors for these incredible candidates. And you can find all of these opportunities at swingleft.org. Type in your zip code, you can find events near you, or you can go to swingleft.org slash events, type in a Virginia zip code, you can find events there. Or you can also go to swingleft.org slash Virginia, to learn more about our Virginia strategy and to find Virginia volunteering opportunities. That's awesome. Thank you so much for joining us, Matt. Thrilled to have you. We're going to bring you back to talk about more ways people can get involved soon. Thank you, Matt. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for joining us again, and thank you for stepping up. This is how we win. We win when we all get involved. And we want your story. Share a meaningful experience that you've had as a volunteer and you could be featured on this very show. Mm-hmm. Record it and email it to us at podcast at swingleft.org. Please subscribe and rate on Apple or wherever you get your pods. Share our show on social media, just like Mariah taught you. <laughs> and use the hashtag HowWeWin2020. Check out our page at swingleft.org slash podcast. And of course, sign up to volunteer. We really appreciate you being here with us. And we're so excited to bring you more from the field next Wednesday. And now, just a little bit more of John Burkow, Speaker of the House of Commons. I'm not remotely interested in your pettifogging objection chanted inelegantly from a sedentary position. The position is as I've described it, and quite frankly, young man, you can like it or lump it. Yeah.